be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have given us uh, Your Word so that You have uh, revealed Yourself to us through it. And we pray, Lord, as we open uh, this section of Matthew's Gospel that we would uh, have You revealed to us, that we would see grace and truth coming uh, through Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that Your words would be as manna to us, a nourishment from the heavens, to nourish our souls and to help us to know you. Let us, Lord, by your grace, drill down into your word that we may be your men and women, a light shining for you, a beacon of vitality in our communities. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are in section, well, we, I guess our fourth section. We're in Matthew chapter 8. Verses 18 through 34 is the second half of Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we began the first section after the Sermon on the Mount last week. Last week. And everything, you may remember this, everything in the first 15 and a half chapters of Matthew, so we're smack in the middle of this, everything in the first 15 and a half chapters is proving to the reader or the listener, as the case may have been with Matthew's original audience, that it was, it was to be read but it's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Everything is proving that Jesus is the Christ. So we have the genealogy. We have the miraculous birth. We have John the Baptist saying, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus. And then the temptation in the desert, Jesus succeeding where the people of Israel failed. We see Him beginning to call the Messianic community around Him, disciples, beginning to, He's beginning to heal People And then the Sermon on the Mount. And it ends, as it ends, we hear that they were astounded, that they were amazed, because He taught them as one who had authority. Taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And so, uh, what we now see is the, this authority in action. We see this authority uh, taking shape and sort of, finding new expressions. So he's not just an amazing teacher, which he certainly is that, but he is actually uh, proving that he is God because he is uh, manifesting his authority, manifesting his glory with signs and wonders and some more teaching. And all of this is moving us towards that scene in, in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Jesus and Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so that's sort of the climax of the proof that these first 15 and a half chapters are, and everything, at, um, everything else after that moves towards the cross. So, uh, in this section, we're still climbing the mountain of that proof. We're still wanting to see, we're, Matthew is, is still proving to us and helping us to see uh, that Jesus is the Christ. And so last week we saw Jesus uh, touch a leper, which was unheard of, right? So, uh, and then He healed a Roman centurion's servant. Why would a Jew do that? So He's, he's breaking all sorts of boundaries and um, uh, paradigms. He showed that He has the authority over disease, but there's just huge implications socially and religiously, and, and I just, you know, I think about uh, the Abrahamic covenant. 
If you remember that when God first appeared to Abraham, just you know, generations and generations, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, that he said, through your line, Abram, all families of the earth will be blessed. And here we have, um, and not, so that's, that's an ethnic statement, but it's, it's also internally for, the, for Abraham's line as well. And so we have this leper who is Jewish, but had this disease that Jesus crosses the boundary. And then we have this, the Roman centurion and his, his servant. And Jesus says, I'll, I'll come to your house. And remember, we had that whole exchange of, uh, no, I understand authority. So lepers were unclean. They were socially distanced uh, in, in that sense. Romans were Gentiles. They were outside the family. But Jesus crosses those boundaries. Today, we get Jesus' authority over the wind and the waves. And we get his authority over the demonic. So two super easy passages. Um, but first, actually, uh, Matthew throws in a little wrinkle, and it's really, you know, it's when the Holy Spirit just um, uh, sort of helps, helps me see, I feel like the Holy Spirit helped me see in this time. It's just so fun to get into. And I saw some, a few things in this, these, these small little verses that I haven't ever seen, and I don't know that I've ever preached on uh, these verses, 18, 19, 20, 21, um, I don't know that I've ever preached on them they, and I, or spent much time with them. And they're really, they, they actually offer us quite a lot. We might even spend the bulk of our time here. So, let's read about the cost of following Jesus. Jesus saw a crowd around him. He gave orders to go over to the other side. This is like the opposite of the celebrity preacher, right? You know, like this... Like, you see a crowd forming around you, that's what every preacher's dream is. Jesus saw a crowd and said, let's get out of here. Um, but before he was able to get in the boat, a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples, so this is not the probably of the 12 apostles, but people who were uh, of the group who was following him around. Uh, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, that one's harder. All right. The first one's a little easier than the second. So the scribe comes to Jesus, which says to us right away that scribes weren't all bad. And in fact, this scribe seems to have seen the same thing that the crowds at the Sermon on the Mount saw, that this man has more authority than he does. They Remember, he taught his authority not as their scribe. So here's a scribe. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. So it seems that, uh, that, that he is probably a very sincere and devout man of faith. He wants truth. He recognizes the truth, sees, it as, sees Jesus as the manifestation of the glory of God incarnate. And he says, comes up to Jesus, this man, I mean, he probably had a following of his own. Wouldn't that be really helpful for the movement? And wouldn't Jesus just fall down? I mean, if you guys came to me and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. I mean, that, I, would, I, would think, I would say that was, I mean, I, I, you might not see me jump up and click my heels, but I would, um, but I might uh, in my heart anyway. Um, wouldn't, w- why wouldn't Jesus rejoice? This man says, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, who among us would say that? 
to Jesus. I mean, hope, I mean that's kind of the, the, that's the burden, I think, of, of this, these couple of verses. Who would say it? But, I mean, some of us might, but probably none of us would say it right at first. I mean, I think that's what's remarkable. Jesus actually, I mean, he's had this wonderful sermon, but he's still pretty early on in his ministry. And in my experience, it takes kind of years of learning to love Jesus in order to sincerely say, I'll go wherever you lead me. Because a lot of times people are like, I'll follow you, Jesus, but please don't take me to Africa. You know, like, don't, like, don't make me go to, to the Amazon jungle. I mean, just so I know that's what you're going to do, Lord. You're going to take me out of my house. And, and, you know, he might. Doesn't usually. Doesn't usually. But he might. Uh, he might. Uh, and, and so it, it is really takes a, usually a long time of discipleship. And so there's, this, there's something I find very remarkable about this scribe. We're not told what age person he is. Jesus does not rebuke him, but he challenges him to see if he's ready because he probably doesn't really know what he's asking. Jesus knows what's ahead of him. Jesus knows that he is going to be uh, hated by the establishment and go to the cross. It's cost him his life, and it's going to ultimately all his disciples will get martyred. This man may have, being a scribe, being a sort of elite member of society probably in a religious theocracy, that he, has a, he doesn't realize it, but he's got a long way to fall for Jesus. And I have to think, before we really get into what is going on for us, I really want to think about Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. So if you brought your Bible or you have it on your phone or something, maybe you... Flip there with me. Probably should have marked it ahead of time. Somebody said that's a great way to, if you don't know if you have enough material, it's a great way to take up some time. Don't mark your Bible. Okay. Um, so, Philippians chapter 2, this is that great hymn that, that Paul sort of inserts where he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, this is verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he's God. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, by becoming uh, even death on a cross. So, Jesus is challenging the man who says, I'll follow you wherever you go to see if he's ready to do actually what Jesus has already done. He's in the process of doing. He's already come out of the throne room of heaven. This is the glory of God, the expression of the character of the Father. Now incarnate, he's come out of the throne room of heaven. The train of his robe fills the temple. Here he is in a dusty backwater and... Um, and he's got further to go because he's going to be uh, crucified like a criminal. The, um, the technical word for this is condescension. And I've talked about this before. We don't use the word condescension like that. When somebody, we call somebody condescending, that is not a compliment, right? It's, it's, um, uh, we're saying that they're looking down on us in a way that they should not. But, it, but if you think, what about someone who should? 
And, and when, when God, the condescension of God is the God coming down to us uh, graciously. You think about, and the image I always think of as a king who is uh, riding along the cobblestone streets with his incredible uh, entourage and litter. He comes, uh, he sees a, a, sh- a shivering, um, in, in the cold, this shivering homeless person. He, tells, he stops the coach, comes down out of the carriage, takes off his very fine um, mink or whatever he's got, and puts it around the homeless man. This is, uh, it is an act of love, not an act of judgment. Uh, this act of condescension, coming down from his station on high, uh, down to the lowest to the low. That's, and that's what, what Jesus has done. And that's what Jesus calls us to. Because we are in part of our baptismal covenant. Each of us who have been baptized inside the Episcopal Church, I don't know what the liturgies of the other denominations say, uh, but it says we, uh, we're, we're called to uh, treat everyone with dignity and find um, and reverence them as we reverence Christ. And that's the highest of the high, but also the lowest of the low. I, I have a hard time with that. I don't, I don't like making eye contact with people who are asking me for money on, on, the, on the street corner. I don't like, um, if I don't have something to offer, I just don't want to offer sometimes. I, you know, like I just, sometimes I have a hard time. If someone is, has hurt my feelings, um, having a hard time with that. And Jesus says, you still got, you still got room to fall. Um, and so, uh, he's not saying, uh, this is not one of the places where he's calling us all to poverty, saying that he has nowhere to lay his head, and neither should you. He's saying, I think, that um, you never know where this journey is going to take you, or to whom it's going to take you. From Philippians 2, from Jesus coming to us like this, condescending, lowering himself graciously on our behalf. I also want to think of Philippians chapter 4, where Paul tells us that he has been in plenty, and he has been in want, and he has learned to be content in every situation. Oh, that's chapter 3. Um, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length you have re- revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Sorry. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Paul, has, Paul says, I know how to carry myself if I have wealth, faithfully. I also know how to not have despair if I lose what I have, and Paul certainly had been both things. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That verse is often used to say, I can do anything I want to put my mind to in the name of Jesus. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, I, if I really put my mind to it, I could dunk a basketball. Y'all, those days come and gone, right? I can't, like that, I can't. I, it doesn't matter how many times I say I believe in Jesus, I'm not going to dunk a basketball on about more than about a seven-foot rim. You know, it's like it's, you can't do all things. I mean, I'm, I, I like 
thinking, you know, I like telling my kids, gosh, you know, the sky's the limit, you can do anything you want. But the truth is, like, they're probably not going to make states in cross country because I, I, I know their parents, you know. Uh, uh, they're they're, they're going to be able to go for a long time, run for a long time, but they're not going to be fast. You know, like that's, um, you can't do all things. Physically, what Paul is talking about when he uses this verse is, I uh, can be content in any situation because the Spirit of God le- dwells in me and never is going to leave me. And so what he is uh, actually, uh, what Jesus is calling this man to is a contentedness in whatever circumstance that following the Lord may lead him. Some have followed the Lord and found riches. That is an extraordinary burden because you are to, uh, you are, we are to steward those well and care for other people. Some have followed the Lord and had to give everything up. It was a matter of integrity. Um, I, I, I couldn't lie on my taxes. I couldn't, um, you know, whatever it is. And they, had, they lost everything. Or I had to sell everything because I was moving to be a missionary in, in Bangladesh or wherever, wherever they're going. But most of us have our own burden, and that is to be in the middle class and hold what we have but hold it lightly and use it for His glory. That's a lot out of those little verse, that little verse. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And if you're really going to follow Him anywhere, you might not either. Could you say that? Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. You don't have to raise your hand and tell me. And probably you shouldn't. Probably it is a question we all need to wrestle with. So, certainly I do. How far are we willing to fall for Jesus? We might not have to, but it exposes our idols. Now the second one is harder. First, just let me go bury my dad. Jesus says, you come follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. <laughs> um, when you're reading your, your, little, your devotions and you come across that verse, is that one you're going to you know, put on Facebook? <laughs> Probably not. How do you, I mean, hear, what's your reaction when you hear Jesus say, you follow me? It sounds harsh. I mean, so I think I know why you mean that, but articulate, flesh that out for me. Why does it, what's harsh about it? Because he wanted to have closure and I guess in some way maybe you're honoring your parents. You want to show your appreciation for the parent and treat them with dignity. Yes, you want to treat your parent with dignity. I mean, like, in the, what about the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. We're not actually told the father is dead, right? And in fact, Jesus' answer might imply that he's not. He's talking about the spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury their dead. 
He's not likely indicting the man for wanting to honor his parents. I mean, that's the fifth commandment. Jesus came not to abolish the law, right? But I think he's challenging the man, putting off following him. Like, how many of us say, you know, I'd I'd like to get a little more serious about my faith, but I've got a few things I've got to take care of first. Uh, I remember, this is probably going to seem hilarious uh, to you all, but it, he, this, I had a conversation with uh, a high schooler when I was in college. I was a, a, a leader with a ministry called Young Life, uh, to ministry to high school students. And there's this kid, I think his name was Chris, if I remember right, but he, Chris said, um, I really, uh, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I really think um, right now, just in high school, like I just, I'm having fun, I just love my life, and I think that like, once I get out of high school and get to college, I'll probably be able to buckle down and follow Jesus a lot. I was like, are, are you crazy? <laughs> like, you, like, you never, either, either you're just lying, which is more, more likely the case, or you have no idea what college is like. You need to start now, now establishing uh, your, I mean, we just, how many, how many times have we said that? Like, I, I, um, I, gosh, I've talked to a lot of people who ordained later in their life, and they say, yeah, I've been running from this call for 20 years. I just felt like I needed to you know, make my fortune first, and then now I can kind of put it off. I'm, I'm glad for them to be ordained, but I think, what, what did you think that Jesus wasn't going to care for you in that? Like, what, what, was, the, what was the point of running from, from this call? Or maybe just, you know, maybe it wasn't money. Maybe it was just a sense of unworthiness. I, you know, whatever it is, I've, just, I've got some things I've got to take I need to happen first. Uh, you know, I, my dad, he's probably only got about 10 or 15 more years, so I just need, I want to hang out with him, and then, uh, and then maybe I can follow you. When X happens, then I can follow Jesus. Does that make a little more sense? That's the, I mean, that's the only way I know how to reconcile it. If the guy, you know, the dad's at the funeral home, you know, laying, laying on the, in the pole, and, and I, I don't think Jesus would say don't, Go bury him. So in these, the, 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 there's two challenges here. There's the, there's the first about how far are you going to fall for Jesus. The second, um, let the dead bury the dead. There's no two two the, two. the lessons are this. There's no depth that isn't worth following Christ to. There's no depth that isn't worth following Christ to. And second, there's nothing that isn't worth giving up for Christ. Now, that, both of those things, are a lot easier to say from right here in this cushy, wonderful parish. You guys take such good care of me. And, uh, and it is true. What I've just said is true. And it is easy to say truth. But if I was faced with the hardship of following Christ and having to give everything up, would I? Would you? I hope. I hope. The answer is yes. Would I go kicking and screaming? Maybe. Maybe. So, why is why? There's no depth that isn't worth following Christ to. There's no. There's nothing that's not worth giving up Christ. Why? That statement will take you to the end of yourself. What do you mean by that, Doc? He said it, for those watching online. He said it'll, that statement will take you to the end of yourself. Richard, what do you mean by that? Yes. And, and, and unless we 
are totally dependent on Christ and come and face death or something like that. We cannot, we cannot do that. We probably, more than likely, will not do that. Yes. And so Philippians 2 says, I can do all things through Christ. Uh, that statement that you just said, you've got to be at point, at the point of that kind of call, you've got to be trusting in Christ and not yourself. Yes. It takes a lot of faith. That's why I said it takes a long time of following Christ to get to that place a lot of times. So. Jesus is God. That's why. That's why there's no death. Oh, it's not worth following Him to. He is supremely better. He's more gracious. He's more forgiving than anything that we might try to replace Him with. I mean, think about trying to serve money as your God. It's unforgiving. If you don't have, you, you just never enough. You can't do enough. You're never going to have enough money to satisfy money as your God. Um, it's unforgiving. What if your father, your dead father's approval is your God? I've seen that plenty of times. You're never going to get it. God, Jesus is God, and He is uh, better, more gracious, more forgiving than anything else that we might try to replace Him with. All right, well, let's get in the last 15 minutes to Jesus calming the storm and maybe, maybe to uh, the next one uh, as well, the men with two demons, the two men with demons. Jesus called, Jesus called the storm. This is, this is uh, amazing. I remember uh, going to Israel right before the pandemic. Uh, my great dream, and I got to do it, was, my, it was to teach on the boat on the Sea of Galilee about Jesus calming the storm. When he got in the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So it's, this is told in all three uh, of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptics, like synthesis. Said they see it one, with one eye is the synoptic. Uh, John has a completely, it's, it's the same story, but it's a completely different perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, often follow the same um, uh, agenda and the, the same outline, and they all tell this story. But Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke give more detail than Matthew. Uh, we don't see Jesus here falling asleep. Uh, we don't see him actually speaking to the wind. Peace, be still. He just rebukes it, and it's calm. But no matter how uh, we tell the story, it's so strange. It is such a strange story. How in the world did Jesus go to sleep in a storm? I don't understand. I, there, it is uh, the boat's being swamped. Uh, so I mean, this this raging uh, toss and turn, this little boat out there on this giant lake. It's almost sure, almost surely, there's no cover uh, on the boat. There's no galley underneath, you know, down below or anything. Either Jesus was super exhausted, 
Sermon on the Mountain and all that, whatever it was. Or he's incredibly peaceful in a way that all of us should envy. Or he was playing possum. (laughs) He was asleep. Sure he was. One eye open, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But one thing I've never noticed before looking at this for this lesson is they seek his help as Lord. Remember, we're moving towards recognition of Jesus the Christ, but Matthew inserts that little that little thing. Help save us, Lord. They come to him as a savior. We're perishing. And here they don't say, don't you care that we're all going to die? They don't question his sincerity the way Matthew tells it, because Matthew has his own agenda. He's, he's building to the Lordship of Christ. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. That's a great, that's a great prayer. That's one to hold on to, whether you're in a storm or not. Whatever the, whatever the storm in your life looks like, save me, Lord, from perishing. Even if he seems to be asleep in the middle of the storm, there is some instinct that Jesus is the one who saves. And I think a lot of it can probably relate to what it's like to feel like Jesus is asleep in the middle of the storm. you got a storm in your life. We're asking God to calm the waves. And they keep raging. Probably, I mean, what are they asking for? Save us, we're perishing. What do they think is going to happen? Well, the boat, what, I mean, we, waking him up, what, we, how is he going to save them? Like, he, grab a bucket, Jesus. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, surely they had no imagination for what was actually about to happen. Or maybe he could, I don't know, snap his fingers and zoom them to the other side or something. I don't, I don't know, but surely they didn't expect. I mean, I think the end of the, the paragraph commends that they, they did not expect that Jesus would speak to the wind and the waves and they would hear and recognize his voice and do what he says. They had heard his voice before when they said, let there be. Maybe he was the captain of the ship. I mean, in the time of, he's the leader. Yeah. So when disaster strikes, you turn to your leader. Well, yeah, so he's the captain of, of the band of disciples. They, you know, they were all fishermen. They, they'd probably seen these stores before, and what did they, what was their, what did they do? They that's right, yeah. we got to throw these fish overboard and get a bucket. I mean, that's, that's... So I don't, you know, cup your hands or something. Like, I mean, it's just amazing to me. I, I, it's hard to believe. I, I want to, you know... I just can't wait to get to heaven and watch all the videos. There, I mean, it's just going to be... It's going to be so fun to look and see. You just... And it's going to... You know it's going to zoom in and Jesus is going to have one eye open like, this is so funny. Um, he calls them... Of little faith. Do you think this is a playful rib or a stinging rebuke? Just a statement. Just a state. Just sort of a. Just a statement. You're. I felt when you were talking about him being the captain and everything. I almost think of it like even though they're fishermen and they're used to it being like that. Like you said, they knew they were in an emergency, and it's almost like a child running to a parent. 
and the parent can't figure yeah. out. Well, it looks at the parent. The house is on fire. I'm sure the kid doesn't figure out how you're going to put it out, but you know that you're going to do something. You know what I mean? You're going to, I'm going to wake you up. I'm going to go to you, and I know that you're going to save me, and you're going to do something. Right. Because you're my daddy, so you're going to do it. That's why I kind of thought maybe they looked at him like that because they knew he did miracles and stuff, and they should have figured out because they're fishermen. But they figured they were perishing. They had to wake them up like, hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for those listening online, um, Melinda said that they may have seen Jesus like a child sees a a parent. You know, like, I I don't expect you to put out the fire, but I'm coming to you because there's a fire, right? I mean, like, go to the door, you know, let that be. Um, All right, so, no, I agree with you. When he calls them a little faith, is it a playful rib or a stinging rebuke? And I think... These play. And the reason I think that is because he said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So a little faith wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I think he's just teasing them. Because the one that gets rebuked is the weather. And that's, that's the, the word that Matthew uses. He gets rebuked. I actually meant to bring it in. I, I had the idea I was going to bring it in, but I, I forgot this morning. But um, if you... Have you ever read, if you have, if you have grandkids, you should have a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And we'll give you a copy if, if you need one. Um, it, it's a beautiful, wonderful, um, goes through many chapters in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Beautifully illustrated, wonderfully told stories. And it says, um, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says, uh, and a much greater storm entered their hearts. Isn't that a neat? Isn't that a neat way to way to say that? <laughs> what just happened? I mean, can you imagine like Jesus says, "Hey, cut it out!" And like, how many times I've been walking from my car in the, this this wind tunnel, but off coming off the uh, the river, if I could just say, "Hey, give me a minute to get to the office," like that would be so wonderful. Um, but it would never happen. Obviously, it's a strange question. Because he's the one they called for help. What did they think was going to happen? I don't know what they expected, but they probably didn't know what they expected either. And sometimes when we call out to Jesus, save us, we're perishing. Sometimes we don't really know what to expect. Like we kind of figure you're the one that is going to know what to do. And a lot of times we make pray that prayer. We don't expect the way he solves the problem. They did not expect the wind to obey his commands. He shows here that He is the Lord of all creation. All creation. Not just humanity. He is the Lord of all creation. Let me ask, how does this inform our faith? What is the application? Because probably, I mean probably, if you are out on a boat and there's a big storm and you cry out, Lord, save us, we're perishing, you'll probably get through it, but you're probably, it's probably not going to stop the storm. So, obviously, the, the application isn't, well, this is how this works. So what is the application to our faith? What do we take as this from this as 2022 Christians? One of During that time, men, especially the group, but, but men believed that the weather was controlled by gods. And could it be 
that, that, that terror filled their heart. They felt that the, the weather was, control, uh, was about to take them away. And they related to that particular part of the belief. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you didn't believe that the weather was controlled by God, you would then. You know, like that was, but certainly this is proof of his uh, divinity, uh, not just sort of the little special divine spark, which is frankly a lie. You don't have a divine spark in you. But, um, but the, that's another sermon. But the, um, um, but yes, they would have seen that he is God. What, whatever the context religiously was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, Ellen. I look at it as a reminder of, of, of a person who came to Christ as an adult. This reminds me of the same feeling I had. It's, it's how I knew I was lost to know I needed a Savior. was when I had the same thing they had. I was perishing. It was like God opened my eyes. Yeah. I one night, there was an abyss. I don't know why. I didn't, hadn't even read the Bible. And I was going to it, and it was dark. And I just remember that night sitting outside under the stars saying, God, I know now, I'm I'm lost, I'm perishing, I'm terrified, please save me. Mm. And that was exactly how they, I don't know, I didn't know what was going to happen because I hadn't read the Bible like a lot of people had done. I was just kind of had bits and pieces over my life in church. And so this reminds me to remember where I was before I came to where I am now. And to not forget that point of where you turn to Christ for those who can remember. Because mm-hmm. it keeps, helps to keep you on a better path. Right. Thank you. That's a great story. Great story of your own conversion and, and realizing that Jesus is the one who calms the storm in your life. I, I'll say this. Um, even when he seems to be asleep, Jesus saves. Even when he seems to be asleep, Jesus saves. Jesus seems surprised that they would have woken him up. And the only reason I can think of that he would be surprised is if he was already in control. They would have, they would have been alright even if they had let him sleep. Which is what I tell my kids. Let me sleep, you're going to be okay. No. Um, this would have been okay. His saving action would still have taken them to the far shore. And the calming of the sea was just an illustration of what would have been. There's a, there's a song, I think it's probably 20 years old now, a contemporary Christian song that says, sometimes he calms the storm and sometimes he calms his child. It's a nice line. It's a nice line. But I think that the, the thing to take from this is that Jesus is in control even when he seems asleep. Because he does. A lot. All right, well, we've got uh, 70 seconds for two men with demons uh, let me just say this. Matthew's telling of this story is very unique. Uh, there's two of them. Uh, uh, instead of just, there's two demoniacs instead of just one. In, in the other tellings of this, there's just one guy. Matthew has two. Nobody knows why. Except Matthew does that again with the blind men. Why does Matthew double up the, the people who need Jesus' help? Probably just to emphasize Jesus' saving ability. Uh, it's... it's um, Maybe, to, to, maybe Matthew thinks it's lending credibility or emphasizing Jesus' power. But it's the same story, uh, obviously. He's, he's legion. Um, many demons. Um, gosh, I really want to say, say this. But um, 
Let me let me just say, you know, they want Jesus. They, they you know, I don't. I'm not going to read the the passage. They the people want Jesus to leave. Jesus heals this guy. You would think, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Come into our. We got so many more of these crazies. You know, come in here and fix them. No, they say this is. Uh, we want you to leave. Why is that? And the only thing I can think is many times in our family systems we have our family we have an identified patient. He's the alcoholic in the family. But when he gets sober, it messes up the system. We can't blame him for stuff anymore. And so, uh, and now we got to deal with our own problems. We don't want that we, because we have to. We have to. We like putting our problems off on him, even though we tell him he's got to get clean. There's a, he. This man was the identified patient, and um, and it messed up the system. So the question I think from this is what is not just that he has the authority over demons, which certainly he does. I don't have a lot to say about demons, um, but I believe in them. What don't we want Jesus messing with in our life? I'm going to have to leave you with that easy question. What don't we want Jesus messing with? Listen, there's a lot. I love it when I have too much to say about the Bible, and, um, and I pray that we dig in. Next, uh, pray for us. Next week is um, this. This Saturday is convention, so pray for uh, us a lot about that, and also pray for me that I have time for the sermon and the class and the convention. So, uh, those are all important things. All right, God bless you all. Good church, unless you've already been there.